to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. You're joining Chris and Kate from sunny Berlin, cold but sunny, here to talk about all things tech. And what are we going to talk about today in particular, Chris? We are going to talk about the major stress fest that is Mobile World Congress. And it also has some phones and stuff like that, apparently. Phones? Yes, I am. I have seen some rather odd phones over the last week. Maybe I'll do a quick, you know, description for our listeners. But yeah, we uh, attended Mobile World Congress in, of course, sunny Barcelona, which was so sunny. Not so sunny. <laughs> yeah, it was so sunny, listeners, that it was actually snowing. So the um, sun sangria was a little bit lacking. It was a bit more winter woolies and um, lots of red wine. But um we attended, I guess, in effect, three events in one. It's one of those massive conferences across the um, Grand Fira, which is a venue of over eight massive football stadium-sized halls with travelators in between. So if you were at the wrong entrance, for example, to get to the other one could take you half an hour. Um, but there is the Mobile World Congress, which is like the big beast. There is Four Years From Now, which is a complementary or coinciding startup conference, which featured this year, I believe, 600 startups. And there was also the day before in um, sunny Barcelona, when we did get a little bit of sun, the Showstoppers, which is an event for media and podcasters and bloggers like ourselves to go and meet some of the startups that will be and attending. numerous other side events, really. I mean, there's lots yeah. of little side events. Uh, yeah. And I think I think it's about 100,000 people plus. Yeah, about 150. I think I personally walked about uh, 25 mm. kilometres in three days. Um, yes. It's <laughs> the, off all yeah, the I would say to someone who's never been, it's an event that's as much about stamina as it is about substance. Um, of course, Mobile World Congress, you can think of mobile phones, which was probably its genesis. And, you know, there are halls and halls of phones where the biggest we'll, announcement... we'll cover a little bit of later. We, we don't tend to talk about that stuff that much. And we've got quite a bit to cover, so maybe we should press on okay. with our kind of overarching topics. We're not going to talk too much about consumer stuff and phones, no, maybe a little bit at my, the end. My, my phone comment was quite simply that um, you have many phones and often the biggest announcement is they've changed the colour of the phone. I actually do have some to add, but I'm going to do that in my weird and wonderful section later. No problem. Let's kick off with the first of our kind of major overarching topics on the more sort of technical side of things. And I guess the first one is is a lot about the things, um, the internet of things, the internet of all the things, the internet of interconnected things. <laughs> the internet uh, of everything. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I don't think the internet of things was new, not at all. No. That's pretty well established now, but it's more about how to connect and maintain and find and manage all these things, I guess. And, I we noticed a few trends around this, and we've got a couple of snippets of interviews we're going to intersect with some of this. Um, where so platforms for managing devices, platforms for provisioning devices, i.e., getting them onto a network as quickly and simply as possible. Bearing in mind these are often these days put out to non-technical people, hmm. and then the intersection of networks like there's. A lot of devices on LTE and 4G. There's some devices on Wi-Fi. There's some devices on, uh, was it LoRaWAN? I always forget how to say it. LP-WAN or LoRaWAN? LP-WAN, LoRaWAN. Um, and 
no one can agree on what the best standard is. So instead, you have companies that help the standards communicate with each other. <laughs> so, oh, boy. Yeah. So it sounds yeah. like they haven't always learnt from the interoperability and platform fighting problems exactly. of um, Internet of Things in the first place. Exactly. Mm. So we're going to jump in with a couple of interviews here. Firstly, I think we'll go somewhat chronologically. The first was from a, a company we spoke to uh, at the uh, Showstoppers on Sunday night, a, co- a smaller company called Edgewater, Ooh. who have something they've called Wi-Fi 3, which uh, I couldn't really quite get out of them what that meant exactly. But um, And they're trying to solve the problem of dropout of networks. They're focusing on Wi-Fi right now, um, but with the intention of the kind of edge-to-edges of networks and other network protocols in the future. I mean, they're a small company, so we'll see if they realize that. Um, any thoughts, or should we just jump straight into the interview? I think we can jump through on this one. What is Wi-Fi 3? What, what world do you come from? Let me ask you that. We're first. actually mostly right for tech people, so we yeah. could go into some details. I'm mostly IoT, like. and Chris is like, doing dev stuff, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. So, I've never heard of Wi-Fi 3. So. Me neither. So uh, we've built our own chipset and silicon from the ground up. Okay. Uh, wow. And it, and uh, we've got 24 patents layered around our technology, mostly focused on what's the biggest issue in Wi-Fi, interference mitigation. So you might not know that it's the biggest issue, but it actually is. So um, our, our, we wanted to solve Wi-Fi first. It's the most ubiquitous technology. So true. But with our OFDM patent base, yeah. we'll eventually look at the 5G opportunities as well. But today, let's just fix Wi-Fi first, and then yeah, we'll yeah. go from there. And where's, your, where's your customer base? Is it- um, US or Europe? So we are global. Yeah. Our primary our primary focus is the US okay. as well as Europe. That was Edgewater telling us about their Wi-Fi 3 standard. And then uh, next I spoke to a French company called Bcom. Well, they're not really a company. They're more of a, a research sort of laboratory project, etc. They had a few things, but the thing that interested me was that, as we've already alluded to, there's a lot of these standards and they're changing quite frequently. And yeah, well, I think in the, in the, in the, the theme of the old XKCD comic of, um, we have 14 standards, you know what we need? Another one. Mm-hmm. I think this is very much the case in, uh, in the IOT and small device sensor space. Mm. And this, in theory, means that every time something changes, you need a new device. Everything's sort of hard-coded onto chips in the device. And Beacom had invented uh, quite a small um, prototype device that they showed me that uh, actually was like software-coded. Mm-hmm. So it was a sort of um, a small um, – I can't think of the right words. It'll come up in the interview uh, that instead of you having to – pull in and out every time you change the protocol you're using, you could actually kind of soft code the chips on it to new standards, Hmm. which was quite interesting. And it's also good for sustainability and things like that. Sounds very useful. Yeah, this is, so this is a quick, quick snippet of an interview with Beacon. When you look into those kind of gateways, so that's a LoRa gateway, Mm -hmm. commercial LoRa gateway. It's based on a chip that is made by Semtech. So that pretty much hardware implemented. Mm-hmm. So when you want to make this technology evolve, you need to basically take your gateway and, and change the chip inside because okay. it's really it's hard coded basically, yeah, yeah. especially on the physical layer. So what we've done, we've developed this small module, mm-hmm. which is actually uh, you've got the uh, schematics over there. A photo is much more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> 
and um, that's a software-defined radio module, okay. yeah. and um, which is pretty compact. Uh, there's a hardware part which is uh, in charge of filtering all the input signals, cleaning mm -hmm. cleaning all, basically the signal, and that feeds an advanced receiver that runs in the the cloud. And the cloud here is that computer. And there's the cloud, right? <laughs> 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 small cloud, uh, small small uh, board, small cloud. <laughs> yeah. And actually, what we're saying is, this this is reconfigurable. So if we want to upgrade the um, the hardware part, it's possible because it's made of there's a FPGA inside. Okay. And if you need to um, change the uh, waveforms, the demodulation process, whatsoever, you can change the software okay. inside, the, inside the cloud. So that's flexible and that's evolutive. And that was Beacom telling us about standards and the ways of making it more sustainable through um, their device. And then finally in this little segment of interviews around the kind of competing network standards and how they can work with each other and et cetera, et cetera, we have a snippet of an interview with Greenwave, a Danish company, um, although you'll also hear an American gentleman mm. <laughs> in, this, in this interview. And they, they, they've been going for a little while. Uh, they showed me some quite interesting demos, actually. They also showed me this quite cool little like mobile home security device. I, I've seen them before, but these sorts of things you could take with you and put like in an Airbnb or a hotel room and... Um, detect people moving around that aren't supposed to be there and things mm -hmm. like that, but it's not fixed. It was quite cool. Uh, that's kind of more the consumer device. But And here we were talking to them again. I guess another sort of sub-trend of this competing network standards is that the telcos uh, can't keep up. You know, They have such a kind of large network they need to maintain that as people jump backwards and forwards between these uh, protocols, they can't really keep up with everything. Mm. So a lot of these third-party companies sort of help them with that. And in some respects, I spent a lot of my time thinking, what do the telcos actually do? <laughs> it seems they outsource so much so much work to other companies. Yeah, I was like, just thinking, it do? sounds like they're making new jobs for um, by curating problems that maybe shouldn't have been there in the first place or something. I'm not sure about that, mm. but I think they're just so large that... Yeah, true. I, I, don't, I don't know. But, I mean, this is not, not nothing new, having consultants to... To filling gaps for large companies is nothing new. I mean, startups think the whole kind of modern way of the startups think it's a new concept, but it really isn't. I mean, consultants have been there forever. Um, anyway, we digress. But um, what Greenwave have done recently is they sort of uh, created their own, or they took over their own little telco uh, so they could have a, a telco license mm -hmm. so they could help other telcos kind of onboard and provision devices much quicker oh. through their management platform. Um, yeah, I mean, we spoke about quite a lot in this interview and I've pulled out a particular segment here, but hopefully this will illustrate quite what they're up to in, in helping the, the telcos keep up with all these changes. So uh, Another thing we also identified is that a traditional IT use case today is a gateway with some devices connected to it, and that gateway then typically connects to a router. In many of our use cases, it's combined, but it's still, to some extent, a relatively technical setup. There is things that can go wrong. If you have an industrial use case, depending depending on Wi-Fi, for example, what happens when the routers change, etc., etc. So the fascinating thing about devices connected to the mobile network is obviously that there you have a direct communication to the endpoint. You don't need any bridges, gateways, and such to get to that device. Key problem were then that uh, as these devices 
got cheaper and are getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, it's so damn important that the cost of keeping them alive is super low. Because if you have a $10 device, it doesn't make sense. It costs $20 a year to keep it alive. It, it is efficient to a great extent. What we then also have announced at this fair is that we see a combination of mobile network and LoRa yeah. as being a way to fill out the, 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 the holes <laughs> in the map and, and also to do something which mobile is not necessarily super good at, yeah. that is penetrating uh, buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so by, by taking a, a LoRa core and adding it into our ecosystem and adding it to our building yeah. engine and all that stuff and the device management means that, that you as a user don't need really to take a decision whether yeah. to go one or the other. And that was Greenwave telling us about their new way of supporting and solving the problems experienced by telcos. Mm. And actually, I told a lie. There was actually one final interview in this segment that I forgot to add to the show notes. And this was, because <laughs> I did add it to the show notes, I can't entirely remember what the name was. P-P-O-L-T, P-P-O-L-T-E, I think, something like that. Positioning positioning over LTE. Um, and this was actually also quite interesting. It was, again, a fairly long interview, and I've just pulled out a couple of salient points to, to sort of to highlight what they're doing. Um, and this was, um, so Kate, imagine if you attach a sensor to, uh, well, imagine you contract a bunch of people to go and implant sensors in trains, on cars, mm-hmm. all around a smart city, for example. What do you think one of the biggest issues might be in, with having all these sensors? Um, making sure they're working um Reliably, making sure the data is being not only collected but analysed and being used in a useful way, making sure the sensors aren't being damaged. Sure. I would also add to that list knowing where the sensor was, maybe? Well, I would assume there'd be some mapping of the sensors. This did, yeah, <laughs> this is what I assumed as well, but apparently not. Oh. So um, this That's is the interesting weird. thing. Apparently actually knowing where a sensor is, I mean, even especially in its first stage, when it's first turned on, uh, is not as easy as it may sound. Oh, and things do move around. Yeah, um, of course. Not, not, not everything in a city moves around, but some things do. Uh, so knowing where it is. And this was an interesting interview because I guess a lot of people would think that you'd use GPS. Yeah. But GPS is actually very battery intensive. I was thinking beacons, And these perhaps. are devices that have... Sorry, say that again? I was even thinking beacons, perhaps. Well... Given these are things that are moving around... But this is kind of connecting to that, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm not Actually, sure. I'm not, I'm, to be honest something. with you, I'm not even sure if beacons are sort of almost yesterday's news. I don't now. know. I, don't know. I still have a soft It's hard to beacons. say. I think it's hard to say because sometimes people use different words for the same things and the same use case, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, yeah, GPS is incredibly battery intensive. Mm. Uh, so it's not – whilst it's a very accessible way of locating an object, it requires an extra chip, it requires extra battery, and these are very tiny devices. Mm. So POLT, uh, the company and kind of their own proprietary protocol, is a way they're actually using the LTE standard to uh, get the location of a device. Uh, and it's very, very yeah, it's, it's very efficient, uh, it's very fast, and it's quite accurate. And, um, yeah, so here's a quick snippet of my conversations with them. And then what we're realizing is that 
they would like to have the ability to locate these things for several reasons. One is they may not be provisioned where they thought they actually provisioned them because mm-hmm. they often outsource the provisioning of these things to contractors who aren't always reli- as reliable about putting in uh, the exact lat long of yeah. where they actually yeah. installed the thing. So being able to have the ability to locate the that thing over the same medium that they're communicating over, which would be LTE, is really powerful because it doesn't. You don't have to put a GPS in it. Um, you may not have Wi-Fi available in a smart city's uh, use case. So having that backup capability of geolocating that thing even just once, just once, is very powerful because our technology doesn't require you to add anything to that device because we're already using the existing LTE signals mm-hmm. that are already being used for communicating with that device in the first place. Okay. And I mean, why why not use GPS? Is it battery... Yeah, so, so so GPS requires another radio, right? right? So if you've already made the decision to put LTE in a device because you want to communicate, you can't communicate via GPS, right? Um, uh, you And the IoT, these IoT devices in particular yeah. are running on two AA batteries that have to last for years. If that, yeah. you, put a, you put a GPS yeah. on there, it's going to last for days yeah. immediately because it, it's, it, our technology allows you to have nearly up to 25 times less power than GPS. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't take up another radio, so it's, therefore it's, it's cheaper. There's no additional hardware. Um, and there's, it's smaller because you don't need to have the room for the antenna. Okay, so there we had Chris at Mobile World Congress this year in Barcelona talking about PPOLT. And now, Chris, you, were going, you had some um, commentary and an interview regarding developers. Do you want to maybe walk us through that? Not quite developers, Kate, but actually how... Um Feeding a little bit into what we just discussed in that things are constantly changing mm. and shifting and having tightly coupled systems uh, when things are constantly changing and shifting, is it slows you down. And in the developer world, this has sort of largely been solved over the past few years with things like microservices, REST APIs, containers, the ability to swap components of an application in and out and onboard them and scale them very quickly. And this has been a trend in software for the past few years. What I found quite interesting at Mobile World Congress was actually quite a few companies, uh, especially in the field that we're talking about, these kind of suppliers to telcos and things, doing the same thing. Um, and quite a few companies use the same terms. They used, I heard from some of these companies, containers, Docker, mm. uh, APIs, microservices. And I found that quite interesting that uh, a year or so ago I didn't hear this. So a lot of these... Um, network companies and providers of those services are using the same practices, which isn't really surprising, but it was more that they mentioned them so much. And these were not always tech people. They were business mm. people mentioning them and understanding not only what why they're useful, but what they are. Um, so I found that quite interesting. Mm. Uh, and also bringing everyone, you know, sort of using the concept of cross-functional teams and things that are often using tech companies, like not just having engineers over here and designers over here, mm. but keeping the teams representatives of, of these sorts of groups in each team so they can all address the problems together and in a more agile way, things like that. It was it was quite interesting to hear those terms mentioned. And I had it in a few interviews, but I'm going to uh, mostly pull out a, a reasonably long segment here from an interview with uh, Italtel, uh, oh, yeah. where as part of some other discussion, we also talk about this. And then the other important point is uh, that once you introduce uh, innovation like automation, you need to do this with uh, steps 
uh, in terms of uh, it's quite difficult that an IT manager wants from day one to have uh, full automation uh, in its network. So our approach with NetProper was at the beginning to put together information from the network and from the service, in this case collaboration services. The second steps were to manage by the same tool but with the semi-automatic approach to manage both the network behavior and the uh, UC call control behavior. The third point is to introduce automation with the sort of human interaction, so acting sort of bot yeah, yeah, that yeah. I'm able yeah. to interact with the, the system. So in, I use a leverage on automation, but in a controlled way. I'm telling to the system what you have to yeah. do in an easy way, but yeah. controlled. Yeah. The last step is the, the intent-based networking. So in this case, full automation, so networking that provides me information about uh, from assurance tools, providing me information, network as a sensor, and then applying policies on yeah. both network and application. Full uh, developed with the microservice uh, logic so that we can extend the integration with the, uh, not only with the collaboration application zone, but also with other kind of application. We already addressed uh, uh, the use case in this part also with the industry. But the idea is to have uh, basically leverage on SDN controller, leverage on assurance tool that I have in the network, network as a sensor, integrate the application system for control or IoT platform, other kind of system, putting together the information and having a sort of policy engine that is able to decide what we have to do depending on the information that they gather from and the how, network. From the how can you create those policies? Is it a very programmatic way of creating the policies or a sort of it's, visual drag and drop? So it's a, a sort of template. Okay, for yeah. example, for the dynamic additional control, I can have a template to set just, uh, I don't know, the bandwidth limit and saying that if I have this uh, situation, mm. then we have to apply that policy. That could be a specific template mm. related to the specific use case. But the other point, it could be also to uh, give a tool to, the, to a customer to select uh, the variables basically to uh, adapt and define the threshold to apply policies uh, uh, depending on the specific needs and specific use cases. If you think to, we have the first experience on communication collaboration, you see, but the other experience that we are doing is for the industry. Mm-hmm. And we have the same trouble because uh, we need to, to talk to the Uh, OT manager, not the IT, but this is something that is changing because uh, we need to position the use case useful for the plant manager, but they need also to understand the networking and other stuff. So it's some uh, more critical, but it's something that is needed in this moment because the technology is not just for the ICT manager. The other point is also from our system engineer point of view, we are trying, uh, we are trying to, uh, to change their mind. So we don't have to work on CLI now, but we need to work on REST API. Yeah. So also the way to interact with the object is changing. Okay, so that was Chris talking to a Telltale at Mobile World Congress. And now we're just going to go through some of the random bits and pieces of Mobile World Congress and its associated events. Um, It would be fair to say that the buzzword of the whole event was 5G. I wrote a little article about 5G for D-Zone in case you're wondering what the heck is 5G and I really don't know what you're talking about, Kate, just to get you started. Um, 
And surprisingly, I thought there'd be a lot of blockchain, but I think I heard it maybe once or twice in the whole conference. There was a few, and they were when they when did see blockchain, it was very out of place. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, it felt a bit more like an add-on, so that they could do an, I, uh-huh. an ICO or something, which was a little a little odd. But um, plenty of AI, of course. But you know, the winner of the whole thing was, of course, the five G. And the weird and wonderful of um, services being structured around that. But um, mm. one thing I really like to do as someone who's interested in wearables and, you know, that kind of space is see companies as they evolve. And one company I was pleased to catch up with was Waverly Labs. Um, Waverly Labs have basically created a um, wearable in-ear product that can also be, I guess, a handheld product. Uh, called Pilot, and it's a translator. So it uses um, AI, of course, to translate languages. So the the idea being that you can literally go from um, in a conversational setting, maybe a you know a business meeting or something like that. I could be talking in Spanish. You could be talking in um, I don't know uh, what's a language, Chris? Throw me language, Dutch, Flemish. Why not? And. Um, it would translate back um, in your yeah. ear. A bit like, you know, you would imagine when you see um, people at the UN with those headphones, but um, a, a bit faster with higher accuracy. And um, mm. the reason I, was, I think I was interested to talk to Waverly was that they were probably the, the first people in the space to do this. And they've been able to get better at it, but also roll it out to different languages. And I think it's a, it's interesting to see them kind of going from strength to strength at a time when we know that um, Google, particularly you know post takeover of DeepMind, have really gone heavy on the Google Translate and those kind of areas. Um, Microsoft's involved. All the big players have recognised that there's so many use cases when we look into voice activation and um, and language. So um, I will be actually doing a you know rolling out a longer interview with Waverly so that we can go over it a bit more um, on a later episode. But it was just one I wanted to mention. Um, We do have a a quick snippet here. Yeah, we'll just do a little snippet uh, to give you a a bit of a feel. It was, um, you know, a fairly convivial event. Um, And and actually, but actually the the bit that interested me most with uh, Waverly, I mean, it's sort of, we're we're finally getting the babble fish from from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but... Oh, and also in Star Trek and things like that. Mm-hmm. But actually that uh, they offline a lot That's of right. the uh, translations, which is super useful. I get a bit sick of everything always being reliant on an internet connection. Yeah, <laughs> and I might add it also yeah. transcribes as well, which is a huge bonus for anyone mm. dealing with a business meeting or journalism or anything like that. Um, so the wins are, you know, are substantial in this area. Um, so great. This is Waverly from the Showstoppers evening. Uh, a use case that a lot of our users is is that they have a relative or maybe a mother-in-law that doesn't speak the same oh, language as them, and they've never had so many times. right. They haven't had like we a real conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm Australian. Chris is English Australian. So yeah, and you know, we've been married now ten years. We don't understand each other. Yeah, English English is weird compared to Australian yeah. English, and then yeah. American English. It's also weird, but right? You know, which is actually which is actually a good point that we you're actually have about dialects. Yeah, yeah, we have we have so when it comes to English we do have Australian because they're different yeah because yeah, yeah. if you're going to say on your bike I'm just like oh do you want me to get on my bike or like on my Ahavo I don't know I don't know you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. is it your own translation engine so when it comes yeah so when it comes to the ASR and the and machine translation yeah we do have our own um, we, we have our own engine and cache that we are using but if we're not 
confident in it. We also have connections to, to other APIs. Specifically, when it comes to like, there are some languages that are very difficult that other people are doing. You know, and so that's what we, we really say. Who that is, or is it various? I mean, yeah, I think yeah, it's various. I think you can you can guess. What was harder, the hardware side or the the software side in terms of actually making a translation engine? And do you think it'll ever you'll ever be able to make one that works without a phone? So it's actually great questions. Um, you know, I think <clears throat> you know, I think that the the software side is more innovative in a lot of ways, right? We're talking about doing some, um, you know, proprietary algorithmic design, right? And on the hardware side, it's not that it's not hard, and I love hardware. Um, but I mean, a lot of the software that we're doing is, is you know, so this, they're DSP protocols, meaning that we're doing, like, making sure that, they, that, the, that the noise coming in, the active cancellation is right. And um, the chip design was hard because it's so small, but they were known problems, you know? And so I think... I would say that there is a lot more challenge, a lot more growth on the software side, you know. And then part of what we're even doing now, um, which I think we're open and released about this, is that um, we have been looking at the most common translations for language pairs, as we call it, right? English to French, French to German. And we then, by caching this and knowing this, we are creating, you know, enough of a database that we can say, okay, how large is this database and, you know, accurate and so that we can have this offline completely, right? All right, that was Kate and I speaking to uh, Waverly about the... What's the actual name of the product, Kate? It's called Pilot Translator. Pilot Translator, mm-hmm. okay. Um, I'm going to throw in again another little trend here for my next one. No specific examples to mention, but uh, the past couple of years at pretty much every tech show has been the Alexa, mm. Alexa everywhere. And I'm sorry if I just set that off. But actually this year at uh, Mobile Congress was really the time for Google Assistant to shine. It was. I saw a lot of Google Assistant, far more than the Amazon alternative. And the Apple alternative was nowhere to be seen, of course. Well, no, it was seen in a few places, but it wasn't really working. Um this was interesting because uh, Google had their own like Android presence, which got rather washed out because of the weather. But they had uh, Google Assistant like representatives at lots of other phone vendors' stalls, uh, stalls, <laughs> booths. <laughs> Sounds like they just got like a few phones on a tre- <laughs> trestle table, um, like talking about what people could do with Assistant and things like that. So they've done a lot of partnerships to get their spread as wide as possible. And this is interesting, of course, because whilst the Amazon option means that someone has to go out and buy a device or has to actively install it on their phone, Google and Google Assistant is on any mm-hmm. new version of Android. That's right. So it's pre-installed. So there's no barrier to entry. It's already there. Uh, so actually, it's kind of like Google doing a very clever move of letting Amazon do all the groundwork <laughs> of getting people used to smart assistants and then jumping in and saying, thanks, guys, we'll take over now. <laughs> so, so it's actually a really good comment because I know yeah. the last couple of rounds of shows, if we look at IFA in Germany, we look at um, – CES, the claim has been that it's all been Alexa. So um, mm, I think your mm. statement that they, you know, let Alexa shine in the spotlight for, or in the sun for the um, the early dawn and then have jumped in with their own solutions is pretty pretty spot on. Mm, mm. Uh, do you have any um, any of your other small things you want to chuck in, Kate? Or yeah, just, a, just a quick one. Um, I've been quite interested in what Nokia has been doing, Nokia yep, and yep. Um, some uh, – Corresponding companies like Neuron 
um, which I'll probably try and go into in a little bit more detail in another interview. But basically, there was a really nice section at um, at the conference looking at uh, humanitarian innovation showcase, where they looked at how um, you know tech was doing good, and I like this kind of stuff because um you know I find it interesting. And this was looking particularly at how you could set up mobile networks after there'd been a disaster. Um, particularly examples like hurricanes or fires or, you know, where you literally didn't have networks. And, and the means was I was shown by, by Nokia some little boxes, um, that, that would be able to use after around a, you know, a fairly small range to provide a network. Um, and with that, they also had some corresponding technology with drones, um, for mapping and for, you know, doing some of those safety checks, um, but the whole thing was a really nice little package and, um, you know, it was something that I just kind of saw on the fly, but I'd really like to dig into a bit more. So I'll be um, digging into an interview about that um, at a later date. They actually, uh, I'd actually, I wanted to call out the uh, Nokia booth generally. Yeah, they had absolutely. a really nice booth and it was large. It was. Like they had, they had a much larger booth than they've had in the past. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, it was... Yeah, and also there. I mean, bringing it back to the kind of the the inane, they had new phones announced, and they were very popular. They were. They were very nice. They were very affordable. Um, so yeah, basically, Nokia has never really gone away in the infrastructure side, but they seem much more confident in uh, in um, pushing themselves out there. Yeah, actually. I think uh, you're right. I found quite interesting. Um, and actually, just as a little kind of a segue from Nokia, I want to very quickly mention uh, Sailfish OS oh. from Yola. I didn't really go and talk to them because I didn't really have anything to, to talk to them about this time. I've spoken to them before, but I did come across an article a couple of days afterwards on Engadget about um, Sailfish oh, yeah. and just how... They just they just refuse to give up. <laughs> They've sort of had so many problems of, of getting their hardware and operating system out, um, so many adversities, and yet they keep going. They keep just about keeping their head above water. They always have a reasonable presence at Mobile Congress. They always keep announcing things. They have just enough users to keep going. And I just find their whole kind of story just quite compelling. Like, they just refuse to give up. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> Which I quite like. Huh? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Which I quite I, like. I don't know. Um, I, and this yeah. is the thing you get about these big events as well. Um, you know, there is a large chunks of um, halls that are dedicated to, dedicated, sorry, to regions or geographies where, you know, people in, like, you might come from a obscure part of China, for example, and may only spend the conference in that in that little part of the mm. um, the hall talking mm, to mm. to people that you know you you would imagine you could see at home, but maybe not. Um, you know, it, it is really ecosystems within ecosystems. It's um, if you do get a chance to go along to the conference, it is as we said, it is truly massive. Mm. It's impressive in size, but you know there is kind of like a niche for everybody, depending what you're into. You'll you'll find it there, mm, mm, and it's a lot of sure. fun. You know. Do you have any other ones you want to add, Kate? I've got two more small ones. They're my main ones for the moment. Okay. The others I'm going to quickly chuck in. Uh, this I heard about on uh, an Android podcast a couple of weeks ago, but I saw one in the, the flesh, as it were, in quote marks. The ZTE, sorry, not the ZTE, the ZTE <laughs> Axon. This is uh, a strange concept. This was a double-screened phone. Um, I'm, uh, they, they, they had a lot of people on the booth trying to explain the valid use cases for it that no one seemed to really understand. 
um, because it really didn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and it was also very large. When it was folded, it reminded me of phones from the 90s because it was so large. Uh, the, the screen actually... it's weird because from an engineering perspective, it makes sense. But from a user perspective, everyone wanted to fold the screens into each other Mm. like a book also to protect the screens. But of course, both screens folded out, which means you have like a much bigger surface for scratching as well. Oh no. Um, And it was very heavy. I I don't know. Uh, It was fascinating. And this is the wonderful thing about the Android world is that people just try these crazy ideas and they don't always work, but it keeps pushing things forward. Was it a prototype or was it a commercial? No, 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 no. It's, it's definitely available. It's oh, for no. sale. That's it's, really strange. But it, it's yeah. super weird. Okay. I couldn't really fathom what anyone's going to use for it. But yeah, fair play, it's a, an odd idea. And, um, you know, it's it's a little bit different to CES in, in that respect because I think CES is a lot more kind of just-for-the-show objects. Mm, they definitely have yeah. a lot of prototypes and things like that. But this wasn't a prototype. Um and the other one that's uh, new, uh, this was from uh, LG. Okay. And I'm going to include a video in the show notes because you have to kind of really see this to appreciate this. Um, this is something they call AI Cam. I'm not sure what devices it's on. And it's not necessarily a new idea. I mean, AI recognition of images is, is popping up in all sorts of things. But um, it's usually post-processing. And this was doing it live, which is quite fascinating. So they had this, like, weird mock-up kind of town downtown area with animals buildings food all sorts of things and you would just like move the camera around and i'm just going to quickly kind of you'll have to look at the video to to see uh how this works but it's it was quite fascinating that as you move the camera closer what it thinks something is changes so mm. in the video you'll see the the first uh frame i'm filming me filming um you'll see uh, a plate of donuts <laughs> And there's a couple of, like, you'll see, like, its guesses are a bit all over the place. Like, I can see it says ham for the pink donut, which is far enough away. But then there's also a, a bit of text. The text sort of floats on the screen above the pictures. It says party, like, yeah, it's food at a party. And then as you move in or as you spend longer time, it starts to get better. So now it's starting to say sweet food, ready to eat. And then as you move in, it says close up, but you also start seeing sugar. Ready to eat. Um, I don't think at any point it actually says donut, but anyway, (laughs) it's kind of interesting. (laughs) And then I move up the camera to some buildings and you see like there's all sorts of different size buildings. And they're not real buildings, of course, but uh, you see building extension, building architecture, um, aluminium flower. I don't quite get that one. (laughs) Infinity pool. I don't quite get those ones. Uh, Building document i think it's because of the white base then i moved the camera over to a sort of fake advert now here is an example of ai getting something very wrong that we see quite a lot it's a woman of a certain ethnicity with very frizzy hair and it's identifying her as a tree um anyway but it's not it's a picture of a picture in this case but now then it starts to get more accurate and says hair one person so it gets there eventually (laughs) Um, it still hasn't recognised it as an ad, which is interesting. Mm. Um, and then I actually took the, the video off. Oh, they've got a fake Eiffel Tower, which it first thinks is a beer for some strange reason. Um, fashionable Christmas tree. <laughs> then it gets to international landmark. So it learns over time, which is quite interesting. That's very cool. And then finally I kind of took it off of their setup onto real people um, and moved it over to the crowd also looking at it and it, 
it recognizes faces immediately. It's very good at faces, actually. It recognizes the faces immediately. It's quite fascinating. I mean, I again, I don't really have a use case for this, but it was quite cool to see to see the kind of processing happening live. And you know, AI systems don't always get it right immediately. They kind of give you a confidence, and it's up to you to take that confidence confidently or not. But yeah, it was quite interesting. I recommend you have a look at the video to see uh, to see how that works. But yeah, I mean, that was Mobile Congress. I mean, we had uh, we did hours of interviews, which we've just tried to cut down into a few yeah. bits, and hopefully we picked the right highlights. What are your sort of overall thoughts, Kate? You know, it's one of those events that um, you really have to kind of pace yourself and choose what you want. You can either go two ways, you know, you can kind of go for the big players, you know, the Huawei's and the Sony's and all those kind of companies and get dazzled by the, you know, the colours and the bright lights and the music and all that stuff. Or you can, you know, go to the side events and check out the startups, which I always enjoy doing. Or conversely, you can check out kind of the mid players, the telcos and the IoT platforms and that kind of space. Or you can go random, go rogue and just kind of dig your way in and start somewhere and just see what happens, whether it's walking around at happy hour and, and seeing what people are doing or it's, um, you know, uh, just starting in, a, in one hall and going from one end to the next. Yeah, I mean, I think I I always have a different plan every year. I think my plan this year was a uh, didn't entirely make sense. I've ended up I've ended up with a somewhat random collection of interviews yeah. and things, um, and we will definitely be going into more detail. Like we we've only mentioned a fraction of the people we spoke to at the various events we went to. We're going to go into more detail of some of the, the ones that we want to go into more detail of. We just wanted to bring out some, some little trends that we came across. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say nothing. There was nothing that blew me away this year. Not at it was all. lots of consolidation, no. lots of consolidation and collaboration, which actually I consider a good thing. So in my mind, it was a good Congress. It was, um, companies figuring out how to make things work with each other and stuff like that, which which I actually am pretty positive about. Now, Kate, before we wrap up, there's one thing we forgot to do. And I think I'm going to spring this on you slightly, but we are going to do the annual Mobile Congress Booth Babe Hall of Shame. And uh, in this particular year, it was a bit better, but there were still some uh, pretty pretty bad ones. And this year we are going to call out in particular a company I've never heard of, <laughs> Cellular Line. Never heard of them either. Um, yep, but we are going to call them out for the booth babe of shame. It is 2018, people. You really do not need to dress up women in ridiculous clothing to bring people to your booths. Could not agree more. And this one was spectacularly bad. They gave them low-cut dresses, high-cut dresses in the places where you can imagine, ridiculous shoes. Um, yeah. So, and, lane, and so these weren't on. just telco workers who happened to like to wear, a, you know, a clubbing dress. They were actually employed no, to um, – exactly. With yeah. some, some idea that they would, you know, be unable to provide expert commentary on the products, but somehow men had come and talk to them. Exactly. Yeah. So cellular line, shame on you. It's 2018. Shame on you. If you're going to dress up women like objects, then dress up your men like objects too. Or even better, just let people dress how they want. But anyway. In, <laughs> so. in terms of dressing up or dressing down or what have you, I did notice that four years from now, a number of stalls dressing up as a way to attract people with costumes and things. And I'm, mm, I'd be mm. curious to see what the um, listeners think Especially about this kind of thing. Especially smaller companies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes it looks a bit 
tacky to me, especially at four years from now. I saw that quite a bit. Maybe if it's a children's toy or something, but these won't. Well, they, none of them were. <laughs> none of them were. So slightly odd. <laughs> so, I don't know. So, yeah, that was Mobile World Congress for another year. Um, it's always hard to really know what to say about it because you have so much you can say. Yeah. But that's what we said. And, and I'd say we, you... we both are publishing articles on it yep, um, over the next few weeks. Possibly months if it takes us a bit longer. Um, We will link to these on our Facebook page and Twitter and all the other social medias that we inhabit, um, as well as have them on D-Zone, of course. So, yeah, we won't really do anything else this episode about what we've been up to and what's coming up. We'll just leave it dedicated to Mobile Congress. You can check gregarismammal.com for any more details on that. If you've enjoyed the show... You can find us at gregariousmammal.com slash podcast for previous episodes and show notes. And we're also going to be switching the podcast to using Anchor FM soon instead of SoundCloud. Mm. So you might start finding the podcast in a few new outlets, which is good. But in the meantime, wherever you do listen to us, please rate, please share. And even better than that, if you love what we do, you can go to gregariousmammal.com slash support to make a donation or buy some merchandise or sign our now pretty much weekly mailing list. And we have, um, we do have capacity. If you are a, you know, someone in tech with an opinion, maybe you're a startup, maybe you're a business, maybe you're just a person who, you know, like to think about things and would like to have something to say on the show, please contact us. We're happy to, um, to take your, um, your email or your call and, um, see what we can do. Indeed. So how can the good listeners stay in touch with you, Kate? They can contact me on my my website, katelawrence.com. That's Kate with a C, Lawrence with a W. Conversely, on the Twitter, which is at Kate underscore Lawrence, and that's Kate with a C, Lawrence with a W. <laughs> and I am at chrischinchilla.com or at chrischinch on Twitter. So um, I'm not 100% sure what's lined up next in the interviews. We've got still got a few we're getting through the pipe we from are. the past few months. So I'm not 100% sure what's going to be next, but I'm sure it will be fascinating, won't it, Kate? It's always fascinating with um, Gagarious Mammal. We always come across the weird and the wonderful. Yeah.